0: come before you. We come before you in your presence, in fellowship, and in worship together with others. As we hear your word preached, in particular John chapter 1, we ask that you would speak to us exactly what we need to hear. I pray for everyone here within audible range, even listening online, that these words would speak exactly what needs to be heard, that you would give everybody exactly what we need at this time. And so we entrust ourselves to your care. We invite you to come in and transform. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing our series called Sanctifying Monday to Friday. Sanctify Monday to Friday speaks about spirituality and faith on the one hand, faith, and work on the other hand. And in life, oftentimes these two things don't mix very well. What happens is we see spirituality as something we do on Sunday or for private devotional practices, why should I bring my private life out into the public? In whatever line of work that you are in, we try to compartmentalize, or by nature, we just separate these two things. Faith and work, oil and water, um, why don't we just keep them separate? The thing is, as we grow and mature in our faith, and you hear things like Romans chapter 12, verse 1, in view of God's mercies, Offer your bodies, in other words, offer your whole life as a living sacrifice. And from things like, from verses like that, we begin to get this holistic perspective that, wait a second, my faith can't just be a Sunday private thing. It's something that should inform all of my life. It should inform everything I do, including work. The challenge, however, as I hear more and more from many of you about the different ethical dile- dilemmas and, you know, if I were to speak up about my faith at work, it would put a target on my back. At worst, it would, it would uh, marginalize me or at worst, I'd receive a pink slip for being a religious fanatic. How do we live out our faith at work, especially in light of those tensions is what we're talking about in this series. And my hope is to inform, to teach, inspire, even challenge a little bit some of our notions. And today's talk is going to provoke a little bit, not in a sense that I'm, uh, it's going to be words that are, that are a little bit too strong to hear, but it's going it's to provoke in the sense that it, I think it's going to challenge everyone's worldviews about what Christianity really is. It's going to challenge our worldview. And to that end, I'm going to talk along three headings that you'll find in your bulletin in your notes. Just pull that out here. You'll see a sheet just like this. Three headings that I'm going to talk through today. First are Christ and Culture. Second is Christ and Creation. And third is Christ and Conversion. Christ and Culture, Christ and Creation, Christ and Conversion. Three things to talk about this morning. Um as we kind of challenge some of our worldview when it comes to our Christian faith. So we begin with that first heading, Christ and Culture, as we look at John chapter 1, verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1 reads like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word... That word was with God, and the word was God. Our English translation of the word word is correctly, accurately capitalized, capital W-O-R-D, because we're not just speaking about words, we're not just speaking about letters forming sounds together. We're talking about something that's a little bit bigger than that. The Greek word there, logos, it speaks about something that is um, higher, that is divine. And so what's being said here is in the beginning, or this logos, the logos was in the beginning. The logos was in the beginning. The logos also was with God in the beginning. And finally, it says the logos itself was God. So we're not just talking about words being spoken. We're talking about some concept, something That was divine. And what John, the author, is doing here as he's phrasing it this way, talking about the Logos. He's speaking in terms of Greek philosophy. If I could just give a quick review here, a quick talk about what he's doing. As we talk about the Logos, this goes all the way back, even before Jesus' time. For some philosophers, the Logos was a spark of inspiration. It was the moment where you knew right from wrong. For others, the logos was the thing that everything was modeled upon. It was the template. It was the form. It was the original copy. The logos, in the Greek worldview, was something that was between God and man and yet was higher than us. It was divine. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of examples here. How many of you grew up playing an instrument? Raise your hand. Do you feel like after all those years that you were forced to play the piano like I was, for five years, every day, piano practice, piano practice, piano practice, and you hated it and you got done with it, but now you can look back and you say, actually, that was good, it helped me. Maybe it helped you. For me, it developed an ear so that when I listen to music now, I can recognize harmony and I can recognize disharmony. I can recognize musical assonance or dissonance. And it's not just because I played the piano for five years, I think for everybody we have an ear when we hear something, even children, somebody do a scientific study on this, I'm sure it's been done, when we recognize harmony and what's harmonious, we intuitively know that's beautiful, that's good, that's pleasant. Whereas if something is like, speak to me, speak to me, and then we're saying that just doesn't sound right. It's disharmonious, it's dissonance. The notion that we have something hardwired inside of us that tells us what is harmonious, something hardwired within us that tells us this is beautiful, this is where the notion of the Logos comes from. The notion that there is a higher ideal, that there's a world of forms, this is what the Logos speaks about, something divine. Here's another example in math. Maybe some of our younger people, if I can speak to younger people, you might have learned the Pythagorean theorem. Yes? Pythagorean theorem. But The Pythagorean theorem, which I can't remember exactly what it is, you can probably tell me, but it has something to do with numbers. And that whole thing came from a philosopher named Pythagoras who was obsessed with numbers because when he looked at nature through sensory observation, he saw order And he made sense of of, uh, nature through numbers. Through numbers. And so when you look at prime numbers, when you look at the way the world is structured, it makes sense numerically. To speak of Jesus as the logos is to say that he is the original formula from which all numerical formulas make sense. He's the original prime. He is the original one, three, five. The notion that order and harmony, this is Greek philosophy at its best. And John is speaking through the use of this. Let me give one more example. Um, We don't see snow here in Houston very often. But uh, in the different parts of the country where I've lived, when it would snow, um, when I lived in the Pacific Northwest, it was completely gorgeous. It was beautiful for days, sometimes even weeks. And you'd look out your backyard and you'd see just a pristine wonderland. When I lived in New York, that lasted for about six hours, from 2 a.m. to about 8 a.m., not even, not even. You can hear the trucks driving through, plowing all the snow out, and immediately the next morning, the winter wonderland becomes kind of this soil-dirty, yellow, stained, just kind of mess. And this question of snow and how do we get it clean again? How do we get it clean again? This is something that we're going to talk about today, about creation. And this entire landscape of snow, when we talk about Jesus as the logos, what we're talking about essentially is that first snowflake. And if you've ever looked at a snowflake underneath the microscope, you'll see that it branches out. Let's say it has four arms it branches out on four arms, and if you zoom in on each arm, it branches out in four more arms. And then you branch out, you look more closely, it branches out again into four more arms, and it goes on until infinity. This is something called a fractal. In other words, when you look in creation, whether it's snowflakes or numbers or music, there is something instilled in the DNA of this world Something that instilled in the hard wiring of you and I that we know appeals to a higher order. And what John is doing is he's connecting Jesus, the Logos, or he's connecting Jesus with the Logos, Jesus with this notion of a higher order. What Plato would call the world of forms. Well, John is saying Jesus is the original form from which everything good Is templated upon. Now at this point, you're probably wondering, Pastor, why are we talking about snow and Pythagoras? And why are we talking about um, fractals? And what does this, why are we talking about Greek philosophy? What does Greek philosophy have to do with Jesus? Pastor, we're not here to talk about Greek philosophy this Sunday morning. Are we, Pastor? And in response to that, yes, but that's exactly, listen to this, It's exactly the language that John is using. John is speaking within the culture of the Greek people in order to speak to Greek people. He's using the best of their thought and he's transforming it. He's lifting up the best of their worldview and saying, that's Jesus. And there's three ways that we can engage the culture that we're in. And there's three fill-in-the-blanks that I'm going to give you now. Three ways that Christians relate to culture. The first thing we can say is that stuff, fractals, all that, that's baloney. I just want Jesus. Jesus, he's otherworldly. We don't have to have anything to do with culture. We don't have to deal with culture. In fact, we want to escape culture. That's why I come to church every Sunday. So I can escape the real world. Because when I go back to the real world, it's hard. It's gritty. It's discouraging. There's ethical challenges. Frankly, it's easiest for me to be a Christian on Sunday. And therefore, we set ourselves against culture, understandably so sometimes. And that's the first fill in the blank, Christ against culture. That music on the radio, it's bad. Paul mentions secular music. We're against that. Or the stuff that goes on the, the, uh, the you know locker room talk, so to speak, right? Like we're against that. We don't engage in any bad conversation. We're against culture. That's one way to relate to culture. The second way to relate to culture is well, everybody's doing it. You know, in order to close this deal, all the guys are going out with the client, doing some questionable things. I'm a Christian. I'm just kind of going to go along with it. And we succumb. And we make choices sometimes that we would regret later on. This is the second way we can relate to culture. It's the Christ of culture. Even for our younger people here, you know this. It's quite simply peer pressure. Peer pressure. And for you young people as Christians, I'm looking at our younger people as Christians. You're wondering, what does it mean for me to be a Christian when I go to school and the other kids are behaving in a way that I know is wrong? And you can either say, I'm against it and I'm not going to hang out with you anymore. That's Christ against culture. Or you can say, well, everybody's doing it and you kind of go along with it. And so that's the second fill in the blank. It's Christ of culture. I'm oversimplifying here. But this is basically the notion where Christianity gets completely um, one and the same with culture at large. It's the notion that, um, for example, in Europe you'd see state churches. You know, I'm, I'm a part of the state church. It's just what I do. You know, when I was born, I became a citizen of Sweden and I became a member of the Church of Sweden. It's just something I do. It's not something that's real for me. It's just Christ of culture. It's one and the same. But the third fill in the blank is what I believe John the Apostle is doing. And I believe what John the Apostle does is he doesn't hide from culture and throw it out. He doesn't just completely capitulate or succumb and say, yeah, anything goes. I mean, we can worship Jesus, but we can also worship Zeus. It's not a big deal. We can worship Apollo and we can worship, you know, the God of the air and the God, it's, it's just another God. He doesn't do that. What he does is not against or of culture, but what he does is transforming culture. He takes the best of Greek thought, he lifts it out and he says, that is exactly exactly—that is exactly what our God is like. Christ transforming culture, I believe, is the posture of, of the Christian today. We're not completely against culture. At times, we have to be. We're, it's not exactly Christ of culture, but at the same time, I'm telling you, in your workplace, you, you, you can't just be, well, I'm, I'm religious. I'm not going to do what you guys do. And we're going out for, you know, we're going to go out for a couple of drinks afterwards. or We're going to get together. Well, I'm not going to do that. Well, the other extreme is Christ of culture, where we completely give in, but the third is Christ transforming culture, and that is where I believe our perspective on work is important. It is necessary for us not just to silo ourselves to Sunday and say, this is where Christian faith happens, but Christian faith for me must be relevant and must transform what I do at work Monday to Friday. And so that's the first part, Christ and culture. My personal belief that what John is doing here is he is transforming culture. He's using the best of culture in order to speak to culture. But the second heading, let's move on, the second heading is Christ and creation. Christ and creation. If I can go back to that metaphor of snow, the image of the snowflake, if Jesus, if if Jesus was the Lagos, the original snowflake upon which every other perfect fractal was modeled upon, if you're following what I'm saying. Jesus was the template for everything pure and beautiful. And one day, that one snowflake said, I want to create a pure and beautiful winter wonderland. I want to create. And so what he did was he multiplied himself. And he multiplied himself enough so that there was a huge snowstorm of perfectly pristine snowflakes. And all of creation snowed down silently and sat quietly on a beautiful countryside. And then the sun came up, the trucks came through, and it became like a New York City wonderland. The snow became yellow and dirty. And if you've ever been to New York City in the wintertime, during the snow, you'll see mountains of dirty filth. And the question now is, what do you do with all of the dirty snow? How do we get clean again? How do you purify snow without destroying it in the process? How do you purify snow and get it back to its original pristine state without destroying it in the process? This is what This is what the reframe course talks about. This is what we're talking about when we talk about work. When we believe that everything is messed up, everything is destroyed, it's dirty. It's best just to pack shop, to punch in and say, I'm done. In the end, it all doesn't matter. What does John have to say about this, about the state of the dirty winter wonderland? If you look at verse 2, This logos was in the beginning with God. The logos was in the beginning with God. And if this doesn't sound like Greek philosophy, I don't know what does. In verse 3, all things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being which has being. And so the emphasis on the idea of being, being, being. The notion of being um, comes from... uh, the Greek, the Greek philosophical worldview of the technical word is ontology. In other words, being and how we define being. Were we meant as Christians to just shovel out the dirty snow, destroy everything, and our being, our being were meant to just be spirits, ghosts, in the end, escaping reality and moving on to a higher level of existence. But when he talks about being, what we're talking about here is actual flesh and actual substance. If you touch me, you feel. When Thomas put his fingers into Jesus' side, it didn't go all the way through, it stopped at the point where finger met flesh. And his exclamation at that point was, My Lord and my God. Which is a profound thing to say because God is transcendent. God is spirit. But here you have a man, something physical. My Lord and my God. This whole idea of being speaks about physicality, it speaks about matter, it speaks about this world and this creation. And what John does is he ties it to the beginning. The best of the Greek worldview connected back with the best of Jewish worldview. In other words, Genesis. Genesis. If you've ever watched a child draw a picture with crayon and say, I don't like it, and crumble it up and throw it away. And then with another sheet of paper, they're drawing with crayon and say, I don't and crumble it up and throw it away. And do that again and again and say, I messed up, I messed up, man. I didn't get it right. Sometimes I think we see God that way. That when God created everything in the very beginning in Genesis, He said, I made it, I that I messed up. The, The perfect snowstorm, the perfect winter wonderland, it's dirty. I want to shovel it and throw it out. That's not the Christian worldview because when John says everything that has being was there at the, very in, at the very beginning of creation, what he's doing is saying God didn't mess up. God didn't mess up when he created everything. Everything that has matter and substance, we were created first, physicality with bodies. These bodies were the image of God. These bodies were the image of God. What we're talking about here is a piece of doctrine the piece of doctrine in the fill in the blank is God doesn't reject the body. He doesn't reject flesh, world, creation, matter, listen to this work. Oh, I messed up. I'm just going to destroy it and throw it away. Oh, the creation is dirty. It's filthy. I'm just going to shovel out the old snow. God's not in the business of that. You know, actually, it's more believable to me that God would take dirty snow and miraculously make it pristine and clean and whole again. As Christians, doesn't that make more sense? In my mind, it does. Because it's easy to throw out snow. It's harder to make it pure again. God is in the business, not of destroying creation, but of resurrecting it, renewing it, restoring it, and redeeming it. That's the fill in the blank. Not just rejecting, destroying, getting rid of it, and saying, I'm going to start all over again. But the business of God, and this is why Jesus Resurrected in flesh, in human body. In fact, he ascended into heaven with human body because God's mission is to restore creation, to redeem and to resurrect and to renew creation. To one day make our hearts beat again. There's an Old Testament image. It's beautiful. In one of the prophets where God says, I'm going to give you Hearts of flesh for hearts of stone. I'm turning 40 pretty soon. And the older I get, I wonder if I'm getting clogged arteries and if my heart is getting colder and more cynical and some of the idealism and the passion and the excitement I had when I was younger and maybe I'm becoming less, less, less enthusiastic, I'm becoming hard, my heart is hardening, it's becoming a heart of stone And what God promises is, I will give you a heart of flesh. You will be more human than you've ever been. You will feel once again. You will be able to cry once again, men. When was the last time you cried? I don't cry, I try. I try. Because I have a cold heart. But as God works and massages, massages that thing and begins to make it pump life, humanness again, you're no longer a tin man, gentlemen. You're no longer a tin man as your heart massages, as he brings you back to life. You are made human, more human than you've ever been, more human than you've ever been. The purpose of God in creation is to make you more human than you've ever been before to feel, to empathize, to be vulnerable, to be real. He was in the very beginning with God. He was there. And listen to the intentionality of these words. Everything that came into being, it came into being through Jesus. And apart from Jesus, nothing came into being That has already come into being, intentionality. But we conclude now with the third and last heading, Christ and conversion. Christ and conversion. I'm going to skip over to verse 14. I mean, in between verse 3 and 14, he continues on about light and more philosophical themes. I'm not going to get into that, but this is where the payload is. The payload is right here in verse 14, where John summarizes everything and he says and the word the logos became flesh wait what at that point all the greek philosophers they laughed at john and they said this is this is this is preposterous because such a notion was too profound to talk about the logos to talk about the original 135 the original template the notion of the good everything that is harmonious became man with dirty and odor and and defecations and you know human perspirations and needs that be, the divine became man that makes no sense and yet it makes complete sense. Oftentimes we think that God's more interested in destroying everything and getting us up into heaven, but actually the way God works is not to bring us up into heaven, but to bring heaven down to us. As Christians, you are God's expression of bringing heaven to earth in your work. As Christians, through your work, you are bringing heaven to earth as we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven And as Christians, that is our work and our labor to realize the goodness, the good, the harmonious, everything that I know to be right. Our job is to bring that down to the reality of your Monday to Friday work, life, school, and existence. I'm going to conclude with a story. There once was a good king in a castle this good king in a castle was loved by all of his 11 provinces but there was a 12th province that wouldn't listen. A good king and of his 12 provinces there was one that was unruly, that was disorderly, they wouldn't listen to him, they would, he, would, he did everything. He sent messengers, he sent The best of his best, but nothing worked. The province continued to rebel. They were rowdy and raucous, and nothing he did could reform these people. And so one day he came up with a plan. And he decided to do something radical. And this is what he did the king took off his ring, he took off his crown, he took off his robe. In fact, he took off everything that resembled kingliness. And what did this king do? He put on the clothing of a commoner. He put on jeans, t-shirt. He went to that 12th province, to the town square, and he rented a little apartment just off the center, and he just started living there. Nobody knew. No announcement, no entourage, no fanfare. He just decided to move in to the town. Living in that apartment, the next morning he woke up, he came downstairs and he walked to the town square and he went to buy some food, some breakfast, some things so that he could start, you know, filling up his refrigerator. So he buys bread and he buys some fruit and they're like, do I know you? Sir, you look familiar. And he says, yeah, I I just moved in. And he brings his food, eats lunch, he'll go out to lunch or he'll, he'll go meet the people. He, goes, he sits down in the park and sits down with the other old men and they start swapping stories and they start talking about the good old days and yeah, you remember the king did this and the king did that and the king would say, yeah, I remember that. I remember that, that was pretty cool, huh? And they're all talking stuff and he says, wait a minute, you's, you, you, you's, you're a little different. There's something about you. Who are you? You're not who I think you are, are you? And he does this for a week, a month. And the old guys, they're like, yeah, yeah, I think this guy's the king, right? And then the people in the town square, they're like, I think the king is buying apples from me. And the next thing you know, word begins to get out that the king lives in 3B over on the corner square. And the people that had that crazy drug-laden house party downstairs from him stopped doing it because, uh, I don't know if we should do this. The king lives upstairs. And some of the criminal activity that used to happen on the stoop late at night, it began to lessen until it completely disappeared. Why? Because the king lives upstairs. Well, did the king tell us to stop? No, but, you know, it's the king. And gradually, in increasing measure, this town from the inside out transformed and became the most beautiful and most reformed of provinces. Why? Why? Not once did the king decree anything or say, thou shalt. He just lived among them. He brought heaven down to earth and dwelt. Listen to the amazing words of John 1:14. The word became flesh and lived, dwelt among us, dwelt among us. That word dwelt. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Friends, the objective of the gospel is not to get us up to there. It's to bring up there down to us. This is the mission of your work. This is why you work faithfully as a Christian. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And not only did he dwell among us, but we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The good king never left. He stayed in town. He took his residence in the worst ghetto, in the worst province, and he transformed it from the inside out. Are you the worst ghetto, the most ghetto province? Are you the worst yet? The worst province yet? Has the king Gradually taken residence inside of you and transformed you little by little by little. Transformation by gradual residency is the final principle. Transformation by gradual residency. God is not interested... Let me rephrase that. God is more interested that we bring heaven down to earth. And the mundane realities. I know that not all of our lives are very heroic, but they're very ordinary. And Monday to Friday, it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm Aaron Brokovich. I'm going to go and I'm going to reform the entire city's water system or something. Or I'm going to go and I'm going to fight slave labor or human trafficking and I'm going to change everything. Lots of our faith choices are so common, so mundane. What formula am I going to use to feed my baby girl today? What, what, what am I going to do with this, with this report that's landed on my table? How am I going to accurately and with transparency convey this? How am I going to sell this without compromising something? How am I going to address some of these labor issues? How am I going to um, work in this field? How am I going to practice medicine? How am I going to do these things ethically and in a way that brings heaven to earth? It might not be through one fell swoop. I've done something great and heroic. Lots of times it's through this gradual residency. Just like the king lived in the town and gradually it changed. Look, guys, I'm not asking you to go tomorrow back to work and say, I'm a Christian. (laughs) And I'm not telling you to put a target on your back. I'm telling you to just be. Be. If you want to talk about ontology, right? you come here Sunday after Sunday, you listen to the word, and one Sunday a month, you eat the word. Be, become. Go back to work, go back to lives, go back to families, go back to school, go back to studies, and just be. And watch God's work in this world through you. That's the first transformation by gradual residency. God's mission through you is just by gradually showing up every day at work. People know you're a Christian. They know that they're doing some things that are maybe questionable, and you're not kind of getting on your pulpit and preaching, but you're just being, and gradually things change. Maybe it'll take one, two, three, four, five years, but people know this guy's a Christian, and he he or she exemplifies it. God's work in this world, transformation through, through you. God is working in this world. But the second place, my mission in my workplace, my mission in my workplace, God transforms your workplace through gradual residency. But the third and last one is not just your mission, God transforming through you, but God transforming in you. Christ in you the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. In other words, the third and last fill in the blank is God's work in my heart and life. As I knock on 40, I hear that the older you get, the harder it is to change because your heart becomes hardened. And that heart of flesh that we once had becomes a heart of stone. And it gets to a point where, man, I'm incorrigible. I'm still grumpy, I'm still irritable, I'm still restless, I'm still discontent. I'm complaining about the same things I complained when I was three, for crying out loud. I'm such a child. But the gradual residency, I think, makes us buck the trend. And I'll close with this, that the older we get, the sweeter we can get the more mature we can become. The more open we become, the more whole and healed we become, the easier to live with we become. Why? Because of the gradual residency of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Some people, they convert and they change overnight. I'm different. But for all of those people, there's so much work to do. There's a lot of work to do. Rarely have I seen somebody change overnight. Even the Apostle Paul, who had, had, who had one of the most dramatic conversions, overnight became a Christian. Dramatic. And yet when you read after that in the book of Acts, he was, he, was a, he was a wreck. He was too much. He had too many rough edges, too many character flaws, too many problems with this guy. And so for 10 years... Ten years, the Apostle Paul goes underground where we don't hear anything about him. We don't hear anything about him. Why? Because that's what character formation is all about. Ten years of shut your mouth and just grow and become. And so what happens is Christ in us, the hope of glory, is that gradually but insistingly he is working on you. Are you allowing him? Are you ceding ground? Are you giving up? Are you surrendering? Are you letting him? Are you letting him work within you? You can fight him. I know old grumpy saints. I do. We can fight him all the way to the end. It will be tested. Today, tomorrow, how you live. Are you letting him gradually take permanent residency in your life? Let's pray. Hey, maybe uh, you never, never even allowed him to take residency. The king came into the town square once and twice. Maybe you've thrown him out. You say, you don't belong here, king. You kicked him and you kicked him out. Or maybe the king moved in. You were young and you didn't realize it. But now you want to acknowledge his presence Or maybe the king is standing outside of the gates and he says, I want to come in and live in your heart and you have yet to open up. I want to give you a chance to just pray and to say, King, Jesus, come in. Change me. Make me new. Renew me, restore me, resurrect me. I invite you to live with me permanently now. And I want to give you lordship and control of my life from this day forward. I receive you in Jesus' name. Maybe for others of us, you're an old saint. You grew up in the church, and you're feeling crusty and old at the ripe old age of 32. I know everything there is about the church, there's nothing new, no more surprises. But the reality is, I feel so cold, I'm so cynical. I don't have that passion that I did when I was younger. And frankly, nothing's changing. I'm the same woman, I'm the same man that I was. Then pray with me. God, I'm one step away from a heart attack. And I need you to put your hand in my chest and massage it back to life I need you to make it fresh like a baby innocent naive fully human and so come into my heart once again not that you ever left please trade my heart of stone for a heart of flesh enable me to cry again, enable me to laugh again, I don't remember the last time I laughed enable me to be fully human and as I've done years ago I surrender myself to you to take control and to surrender once again mighty, resurrecting name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10 30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.